And the second reading this morning is 1 Samuel, chapter 13, and it's the whole chapter. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel, 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops who were with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. And Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favour. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's command. And then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah and Benjamin. And Saul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600. Saul and his son Jonathan and the men with them were staying in Gibeah, in Benjamin, while the Philistines camped at Michmash. Raiding parties went out from the Philistine camp in three detachments, one toward Ophrah in the vicinity of Shual, another toward Beth Horon, and the third toward the borderland overlooking the valley of Zeboim facing the wilderness. Not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plough points, mattocks, axes and sickles sharpened. The price was two-thirds of a shekel for sharpening plough points and mattocks and a third of a shekel for sharpening forks and axes and for repointing goads. So on the day of the battle, 
Not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. Now a detachment of Philistines had gone out to the pass at Michmash. And here ends the reading. Thanks, Pippa and Alex, for those readings. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Sam. Uh, I'm just going to move your music, guys, under here. So in case you can't find it later. Um, my name's Sam Foster. I'm one of the youth pastors here at Richmond Anglican. Uh, and it is my privilege to be able to open God's word with you all today. We're going to be continuing in the series that we've been in for a while now in 1 Samuel, uh, specifically chapter 13, which was just read for us. Uh, the Old Testament is honestly so amazing to spend time in. Uh, as I was growing up, I used to love reading fantasy novels with like swords and battles. Uh, and today's passage has all of that, which is really fun. Uh, and it's quite an interesting story. But what's awesome about reading stories like this in the Bible is that it's not just a story. It reveals things to us about God's nature and our nature as sinful human people that is truly awe-inspiring. Uh, and there is a core tension in today's story in regards to Saul and his trust in God. And we're going to be stepping through the narrative, and then I have kind of three main points that I want us to try and pull out of this passage. But before we get into all of that, I'd love to pray. So please join with me. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word uh, and the way that it can speak into our lives. Thank you for the actions of these people written down long ago so that we might learn more about you and more about how you want us to respond to you and how you want us to act and live as your people. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So last week in chapter 12, we were told by Samuel that the long-term fate of God's people was now permanently tied to their king's obedience and faithfulness to God. That came in verse 14 of last week's chapter, chapter 12. The fate of the people is now tied to their king's obedience. The people had sinned by asking for a king like the other nations. They wanted an earthly, military king, despite the fact that God was already their king. But thankfully, for the point of this narrative, God was merciful and Samuel said that if both you, that's the people, and the king who reigns over you, follow the Lord your God, good. The king that the people had was, of course, Saul. Uh, and we've been tracking with him for a while. And in today's passage, Saul is in quite a tough position. As this expected military leader, this king that's meant to free the people from the oppression of their enemies, as this king military man, this strong guy, begins his reign, what does he do but he puts together an army? We see this in only verse 2 of today's chapter. Saul puts together a standing army of around 3,000 men. That's something that Israel hasn't had previously, a group of people dedicated to the defense of the nation. And it's at this point, only in verse 3, that things start to get interesting. We're introduced to a guy named Jonathan. To some of you, that name might sound familiar, uh, and we'll find out later on that that is actually Saul's son. Uh, and Jonathan is in command of around 1,000 men. So we have an army of 3,000 people, and Jonathan, Saul's son, has 1,000 men. And Jonathan takes these men, uh, and he attacks a Philistine outpost. 
essentially an encampment of enemy soldiers that are watching over the people under their control. He sees this oppressive force and he takes his men and he crushes them. You see, the Philistines were oppressing God's people at this point. That's part of why the people cried out for a king in the first place. So Jonathan sees this enemy and he just takes him out. Decisive action. But what happens next? Well, Saul, the king, he has a trumpet blown throughout the land, announcing to all who would hear that Saul has attacked this Philistine outpost. And you might already hear at this point something slightly mismatched in the story, in that wasn't it Jonathan that attacked the Philistine outpost? Not Saul? But I suppose we can, uh, we can give Saul a pass and say that perhaps Jonathan was under Saul's command as he was attacking the outpost. And so what happens next? Well, guess what? The Philistines, they're not too happy about this. They hear of this uprising. They hear about their outpost being attacked. And so they bring their army. Because that's the point of outposts. It's to let them know that they need to bring more guys. It's to let them know when they're potentially under attack. So the Philistines turn up with 6,000 men. And to top that off, 3,000 chariots. Roughly two men to a chariot, for those that can do maths quickly. And on top of that, soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Saul, this mighty warrior king, has 3,000 men. Men who we find out in the back part of this chapter in verses 9 through 12 are armed with nothing more than farming equipment because the Philistines had gotten rid of all of their blacksmiths. They're armed with sickles and, and the points off plows and axes. I'd, I'd personally go for an axe. It probably seems like the most practical option rather than just holding a small, sharp piece of metal. But things don't look good for Saul and his people. So what does our mighty king do? What does this man who's going to lead the people choose to do? Well, he waits. And as he waits with his army, the threat of the enemy grows worse and worse by the day. His men begin to hide in caves and cisterns and old graves. Some run away back home. Others swim across dangerous rivers to escape. As the enemy numbers grow... The Israelite forces dwindle with fear, and Saul continues to wait. And at this point, you might be thinking, how did we get here? And I imagine, I like to picture this like a movie, that if this was a movie, this would be the moment where the scene would pause. There'd be a cut. Uh, the, we'd see the Israelite army camped over here at one city, able to see the giant Philistine force double their size amassing in the distance. We'd see men scurrying away wherever possible, cowering in fear, slowly deserting their comrades, running away from what they think is certain death. The scene would pause and our main character, Saul, would turn and look down the barrel of the camera down the lens, break the fourth wall, and say, I bet you're wondering how I got here. And if that was the case, 
the moment that we would jump back to is in 1 Samuel chapter 10. And you might like to turn there now if you've got your Bibles open. 1 Samuel chapter 10, where Saul is being anointed with oil by God's prophet Samuel as he is becoming the king, where he is being told that he will be the king under God. And Samuel gives Saul a series of instructions or things to do. And the two things that we really want to focus on today come in verses 5 through 8. The first one, in verses 5 through 7, Samuel essentially says, Go to Gibeah, where there is a Philistine garrison. And once you get there, Saul, this place that has enemies all around it, This place that has a garrison there, which is a symbol of the oppression of God's people who you are definitely meant to free. And by the way, Saul, God will help you succeed in anything you do. Once you get to this place with an enemy garrison, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Basically, Samuel says, attack the Philistine garrison, Saul. And the second instruction is that once he's done that, Go to a place called Gilgal and wait for me for seven days. Then Samuel the prophet will surely come down to you and sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings to God, and he will be told what to do next. So essentially two things, right? So Saul has to do two things. He has to go to Gibeah and attack the Philistine garrison, and he has to go to Gilgal after that and wait for seven days for more information end scene. That's the end of our cutback. And so we jump back to our two encamped armies, back to chapter 13, and we're only at verse 5. With our new information in mind, we can now see that the first of those two tasks has been accomplished. The Philistine garrison at Gibeah has been attacked. Go Saul. So what comes next? Saul goes to Gilgal. Perfect, that was step two. We're on track with what God wants for his people. Saul and his army, they're camped at Gilgal. And the Philistine forces are as numerous as the sand on the seashore, camped not too far away. Saul has been told that he has to wait seven days. And Saul seems determined to do it. And so he waits. But as the days tick by, one, two, three, Three, four. Is Samuel here yet? No, no sight of him, my king. Five. I imagine Saul has men posted at the the perimeter of his camp, watching for this prophet. Six. I can picture Saul waking to reports of more men fleeing in the night. Deep down, he understands why they're leaving. It seems hopeless. What is he going to do? He has to do something. But what? Where is Samuel? Seven. I don't think Saul would have got much sleep the night of the seventh day. He's been camped with a massive enemy force nearby as his men desert and leave. And he does not know what to do. It seems like God's prophet is not going to turn up. It seems like God hasn't turned up. As the day progresses, it gets worse and worse. He has to come up with something, but what? Let's jump into the passage and see what he does. This is verse 7. 
Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And Saul's men began to scatter, so he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul, in a moment of decisive action as the king appointed to lead the people in the absence of the prophet, decides to make the offerings to God. But just as he finishes, Samuel turns up. And Samuel has the absolute gall to question Saul's actions. And so how does Saul respond? Well, he defends himself, right? As we would all do in this situation. This is verse 11, look with me. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I haven't sought the Lord's favour. So I felt compelled, some of your Bible versions might say, I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. Saul gives Samuel no less than five quite good reasons why he did what he did. The men were scattering. You didn't turn up at the right time. The Philistines are assembling this huge army. I had to do something. I was just trying to seek the Lord's favor. But Samuel doesn't seem to get it. Samuel doesn't seem to see where Saul is coming from. Samuel says in verse 13, you have done a foolish thing. Samuel said, you have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. And it's in that response from Samuel that we can see the flaw in Saul's heart. And by the fact that as I was reading this, uh, and I'm sure as you guys are listening to it, we felt sympathy for Saul. We could understand Saul. It's because of that that we can understand the flaw in our own hearts. Because it seems to us in this moment that Saul has done the right thing. He made a decisive action as the ruler of God's people. But as Samuel points out, the issue here is not necessarily the action that Saul took, but rather that God had specifically told him to wait for Samuel. But instead of waiting, in his fear, in his doubt, Saul turns to what he thinks is best, and as the sun's getting low, the seventh day of waiting is nearly over, Saul just makes the sacrifice himself. Saul didn't know what to do. He was in a really tough spot. But as we saw in Samuel chapter 10, Samuel was going to turn up and tell him what to do. Saul didn't have to rely on his own strength. Instead, he only had to trust in God and his success was assured. But Saul didn't trust that God would do what he said he would do. He didn't trust in what Samuel the prophet had told him. And so that brings us to our first point for today, which is that trust in God means obedience to God. 
Think about it. If Saul truly trusted God, if he truly believed him, he would have been able to wait without fear. In the chapter before this, as we saw last week, this is chapter 12, God has been faithful in the past. So therefore, he will be faithful again. But Saul was more afraid of the army in front of him and what the men beside him thought than he was of the God who was willing to get behind him. Saul was more afraid of the army and the dangers in front of him than of his own God. And so Saul disobeyed, not out of spite, not out of malice, but out of a lack of trust in God. And this particular sin that we see here in Saul is one that we've seen a lot in the biblical story, right? Most notably, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, right at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, didn't trust what God was telling them. They didn't trust that he was telling them the truth about the fruit in the garden, and instead they listened to a snake. And on the flip side of that, of what Saul and Adam and Eve did by not trusting in God and their inevitable downfall as a result, we have countless examples of the other direction, where by faith people trusted in God, like Abraham, who was willing to leave behind everything and go to the place that God would call him. Hebrews chapter 11 is a long list of people who by faith trusted in God and obeyed what he told them to do. For us today, we have God's word written down in the Bible, telling us his will for our lives. And if we trust in God, we need to live like it. We need to obey him with our actions, not just with our words. But you may still be sitting there at this point thinking that Saul's actions actually did seem pretty reasonable. Like Saul was in a pretty tough spot and all he did was offer the sacrifice when Samuel was running late, right? We look at Saul's disobedience and then the reasons that he gave to Samuel and we think, yeah, those, those reasons make sense. I can understand what Saul did. And what were his actual reasons? The men were scattering. Their chances were getting worse and worse by the moment. Samuel didn't turn up. So it's, it's, it's partially Samuel's fault. The Philistines are assembling this huge army. You didn't tell me anything about a Philistine army turning up. I had to do something. I had to seek the Lord's favor. So I forced myself to offer the sacrifices. But the reality is, no matter how good these reasons are, they're actually just excuses. And that brings us to our second point, and that is that without trust, disobedience will seem reasonable. We've already seen that Saul didn't trust God. And without that trust in God, the disobedience makes sense. Right? Because if God wasn't going to pull through, right? If Samuel wasn't going to turn up, then, then what hope was there? other than for Saul to take charge and try and lead his men the best that he could. But Samuel did turn up. Literally right after Saul offered the sacrifices, Samuel's there. And Saul should have known better. But he makes excuses. And what great-sounding excuses they are. 
I mean, he probably believed them, told them to himself over and over, particularly that last one, where he makes disobedience sound so pious, so righteous. Surely he, sure he does an, an ungodly thing, a disobedient thing, but he does it for a godly reason, right? He wants to seek God's favour for the upcoming battle. He had to do it. Doing an ungodly thing for a godly reason. I like to think it's kind of like flirting to convert. Um, God says not to yoke yourself to unbelievers, but we might entertain the thought. Or go for it for the, for the sake of maybe introducing them to Christ. We compromise. I was thinking on the way here, I was running a bit late for the 8.30 service. I don't have a printer at home, so I had to print my talk off before I got here. Uh, and as I was driving along the road in the wet, I was watching my Speedo slowly creep up. I had to get to church on time. It's a godly thing, right? I don't want to be late. So I'll just bend the rules a little bit. I've seen this in youth group with young guys that I've mentored before where they don't want to be left out or feel like they're uncool in a situation, uh, and so they justify doing things that they shouldn't be doing with their friends under a thin guise of, oh, I'm helping my mates with their struggles. I've got to be there so that if there's an opportunity, I can point them to Christ. But whatever the excuses we make are, without trust in God, any disobedience will seem reasonable. And Samuel, thankfully, calls Saul out for what he is, a fool. Because he knows that God is faithful. Saul knows what God has done in the past. But in his heart, he does not trust God. So to him, disobedience seems like the reasonable thing. It seems reasonable to do the sacrifices himself. And so Saul fails as king. And what are the consequences of his actions? Well, Samuel says, Your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Saul failed in his role as king. He didn't trust God enough to obey him. And so the kingdom will be ripped away from him to be given to another man after God's own heart. Samuel leaves. He's literally like, I'm, I'm done. And he walks away, leaving Saul with now only 600 men left, camped, powerless to stop the Philistine army from sending out raiding parties in all directions into the surrounding towns and villages. This king who was supposedly meant to lead his people into battle can do nothing. And the chapter ultimately ends with this rather bleak scene of the Philistines moving into the pass at Michmash, foreshadowing a battle to come. And we'll be hearing more about that next week. But this week, I really want to dwell on Saul's failure. You see, the king was meant to lead the people not into battle, not in strength, not into victory. He was meant to lead the people in obeying God. And in order to do that, 
He had to first trust God. But Saul failed. And so he loses the kingship because his heart was not after God's. And the kingdom will be given to a man called David, a man whose heart belonged to God. What's really interesting here, though, is David also sinned, right? Saul stuffed up and the kingdom was ripped away. David stuffs up in ways that seem a lot worse than what Saul did here, and the kingdom is ripped away from Saul. But the big difference between David and Saul is that when they are confronted by their sin, they respond very differently. Saul, as we saw today, makes excuses. He gives reasons for why he did what he did. He tries to shift the blame. But David's heart breaks in the face of his sin. In Psalm 51, uh, after sinning horribly with Bathsheba, Uh, and getting her husband killed, and being called out by a prophet named Nathan in a way which was way more vivid and way more severe than the way that Saul was called out in today's passage, David breaks down, and he repents. And in Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17, he says this, "'You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. "'You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings.' My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. Saul, as the king of the people, doesn't take responsibility for what he's done. He shifts the blame. He claims it's not his fault. Samuel asks him, what have you done? And if you're anything like me, that sounds like an opportunity to say, I stuffed up. I need help. I'm so sorry, God. Please help me through this. Please help me to move forwards. But Saul was not the king that Israel needed. So David will be set up in his place and the kingdom will not be removed from David's line. And that line continues all the way down through more kings, on into exile, and eventually to a baby in a manger that we're going to be celebrating in a few weeks' time. A baby who would grow up to be a perfect man, who would die on the cross, perfectly showing what a king should be. Jesus Christ was his name. God's people need a king who can lead them in trust and obedience to God. And that's my final point for today. Jesus trusted in God so much that he was obedient to God in every way. Because he trusted, even when what God asked of him didn't make sense to an earthly understanding, because he trusted, he obeyed. And as we're told in Philippians chapter 2, he obeyed even unto death. He was willing to die on a cross. And as God's people... We need to live our lives not like the Israelites under Saul and not like Saul himself, but we need to live our lives with Jesus as our king. We need to let him lead us in trusting God and let that trust lead to obedience. Let that trust in God outweigh situations where disobedience seems reasonable. Let's not come up with godly-sounding ways of justifying our sin. 
I wonder if we often just don't think about whether what we're doing obeys God at all. Because what we're doing seems reasonable. We, we like to fit our Christianity around the reasonable decisions in our life. Not questioning if God calls us to do something in obedience to him, which might challenge us. Which might challenge our comfort. Which might challenge our financial goals. I don't need to be generous in this situation because I'm saving my money to provide for my family. Good things. I'm sure we can come up with very good reasons not to obey God. Not to obey when he challenges our energy levels. When he challenges our holidays. When he challenges whether we need to forgive that person who has wronged us, who hasn't said that they're sorry. Whether he challenges whether we need to love our enemies. Whether we turn up to that Bible study when we're tired or whether we meet up with that person that we haven't had time for lately, or whether we talk to that person that's just plain difficult to be around. We need to follow the example of our King Jesus. Let Jesus' trust and obedience to God define our lives, lives that trust in the promises of God, the promise of a better way, a way where our joy is not tied to circumstance, where it's not tied to the size of the army opposing us or what the people around us think of us. A joy that is tied to the reality of God's love for us. I want to live in that kingdom. Let's pray that we can trust God. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your Son dying on the cross. Uh, please help us to trust like he did. Please help us to look past the, the reasonable comforts in our lives, but look to your word and to see how you want us to live. Please challenge us. Please help us to go away from here and make the changes we need to. Uh, please help us to follow you in all things. Lord, we thank you for the, uh, the bad example of Saul that we might learn from and from the fearful example of his people that we also might learn from. Please help us not to be like them, not to run away from what you call us to do, but rather to run faithfully towards your Son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.